Welcome to Voices of Australia, a podcast where we explore different perspectives on how to build a cohesive society. There are few more critical aspects at the heart of our democracy than the levels of trust we have in our institutions and the degree to which we participate in Australia's political system. Politics is not a remote game played in the distant halls of power. It shapes our daily lives, impacts our personal freedoms and moulds our society's future. The need for meaningful political engagement and active civic participation cannot be overstated. The results of recent Mapping Social Cohesion surveys since COVID have shown a drop in public trust in political institutions. This decline is a call to action, a signal that we must all work to continue to strengthen the ties that build the public and the political world. At the centre of this work is strengthening political participation, especially in our diverse local communities. When our political representation mirrors the complexity and richness of the Australian population, it fosters a more inclusive and robust democracy. It ensures that all voices are heard and all perspectives are considered. Today, we're looking at the intersection of public trust, political engagement and inclusion. We'll examine how these elements interact, what's at stake and how we can foster an environment where all Australians can trust in the integrity and inclusivity of our political system. To begin, we are delighted to welcome our first guest, distinguished historian Professor Frank Bongiorno AM. An expert in Australian political history, Frank has contributed extensively to our understanding of the nation's socio-political landscape through his influential book, Dreamers and Schemers, A Political History of Australia. With a storied career that spans King's College London, the University of New England, Griffith University and the Australian National University, Frank brings a depth of knowledge and a nuanced perspective on the dynamics of trust in government. He's a regular contributor to media outlets like Inside Story and The Conversation, with commentary on current debates on historical and contemporary issues. Welcome to the podcast, Frank. Delighted to be here. Thanks, Anthea. Um, it's absolute pleasure from our end. Um, I'm thrilled that you have agreed to be a part of Voices of Australia. In your recent book, as we mentioned, Dreamers and Schemers, you explore Australia's political evolution. Could you share how the tension between the dreamers and the schemers has shaped Australia's political landscape? Well, titles of books sometimes come quite late in the piece, and that, <laughs> uh, this one's no exception. It was actually one that was dreamed up by one of my PhD students, um, Joshua Black. Um, but it did, I think, reflect some of the major themes of the book. Um, and, and one of those is that I think the successful practice of politics in Australia and the successful um, devising and implementation of policy has often required both the capacity to dream and, for want of a better word, the capacity to scheme, certainly the capacity to work the political system uh, in, in a skilled way. Um, we, we find, I think, um, that capacity, those capacities um, sitting side by side in the most successful of our politicians. I mean, my book begins uh, perhaps rather oddly um, for a general political history with the memorial service for Gough Whitlam uh, back in 2014 in the Sydney Town Hall. And I, I did that for a purpose because it seemed to me that Whitlam's death uh, at that time became the occasion for a lot of reflection in the media and beyond um, about 
the possibilities for Australian politics as well as what had gone wrong uh, in many respects um, since the time of the, the Whitlam government. And in many ways, I think Wickham himself embodied those um, those two themes of, of dreaming and scheming. Mm-hmm. I mean, he always thought of power as having a purpose. I mean, it was never for, for Wickham power for its own sake. It was it was certainly power. And you know, very famously, he told a Victorian Labor Party conference, certainly the impotent appear um, as a way of dramatising the importance of of acquiring and exercising power. But it was always with a purpose. Um, and, you know, many of those years leading up to 1972 were spent by Whitlam in various partnerships and, and collaborations with with um, thinkers, policy thinkers, sometimes located in the universities, um, within the bureaucracy, within various, you know, non-government organisations, as we'd call them now. Um, about devising policy that that would be worth implementing. So his idea was not merely about, you know, uh, having a party, a Labor Party in his case, that could be elected, but but about a Labor Party that was worth electing. And and so I think that that idea that you do need the dreaming, you need the, the capacity to to um, to envisage a better order, to to visualise um, things that that aren't there at the moment, but at the same time, the capacity to make that happen um, through the political system, I think, is very much the heart of what I talk about in the book. Uh, Frank, you mentioned um, a successful politician. What what makes for a successful politician? Is it the length of time that they serve in parliament or electoral success or the change they've been able to create? What makes for a successful politician? Oh, I think running through the book, and perhaps this is more assumed than, than, than kind of um, argued out, is the idea that successful politicians don't merely acquire power, um, they use it for a particular end, a particular purpose, that they, they use it um, hopefully for a good purpose. They, they um, are not shy about the acquisition of power, um, but they um, engage in a politics that's, that's ethical um, at the same time as a politics that's designed to advance certain purposes, that there's some sort of vision mm. of the public good or the common good underlying their politics. And, you know, I think I, I show in the book that this isn't a monopoly of one or another side of politics, that, that we have had politicians from the different sides of politics who have nurtured an idea of the public good and have done their best best to act on it. Um, that doesn't mean that their you know, conduct is always exemplary. That doesn't mean that they're incapable of arousing feelings of disgust sometimes for some of the things they do. But, you know, there's nothing, I think, emptier um, or more useless than a kind of politics that's really about just acquiring power for its own sake. And so I'd argue that even a figure like Billy Hughes, you know, someone who's often maligned, I think, in Australian history and, and could behave quite viciously in many contexts but I always sense with Hughes that he never really thought of power as simply there for his own pleasure I mean he was clearly um, at at virtually every stage in his career always using power to to try and advance a particular cause or a particular purpose that he thought um, was worth pursuing and and I think that's to me important it's not always admirable but it's certainly what gives politics um, its meaning I think Um, it's certainly in a democratic culture and structure. It's interesting because I think a lot of people are aware of the power that sits certainly at that level of federal politics. Um, 
and people probably have a differing view about what's ethical or moral in relation to applying that power. But one of the things that you did mention is people having a vision. And from a social cohesion perspective, having a vision for the country is incredibly important. But not every politician is a really good communicator. Do you have, um, you know, could you highlight one or two politicians that you think were really good communicators, as in brought the country along with them on that um, demonstration of the application of power for good? Yeah, I mean, political communication is is certainly, you know, one of the, the skills that I think in a democratic system uh, successful politicians need. And, and, you know, we've certainly had politicians even in recent years who are able to communicate in certain contexts, often quite well, but not in others. I mean, there, were, there was a lot of criticism of Julia Gillard, I think, on those mm-hmm. grounds, that she was someone who clearly was, was a successful communicator, actually, in certain types of, um, uh, you know, contexts, more perhaps more limited context in terms of the numbers of people involved where, um, you know, a consensus needed to be reached, where negotiations needed to be had and and where people um, demanded really Mm -hmm. that they were respected. And and she was clearly very gifted at that. On the other hand, some of her wider public communication was often quite criticised. The term wooden was often used, I think, in that that sort of situation. Um, But we we have had very skilled, very gifted communicators. Um, The demands of communication have shifted greatly, of course, um, over the years, according to the different media in in play. So the capacity to hold uh, an audience in a big public meeting, for instance, was Mm -hmm. essential in in the late 19th and early 20th century. A figure like Billy Hughes, who I just mentioned, had that gift. Um, Whereas clearly in our own times, other forms of communication have have been much more significant and much more important. The ability, for instance, to, to use television uh, effectively. And certainly if we're thinking in terms of, of social cohesion, I mean, that capacity, I think, to to work through the media to address different kinds of audiences and to make people feel comfortable, yes, with the direction in which the country is going is absolutely essential. And, and, yeah. and so, again, I think if we look at, you know, recent politicians, I mean, Paul Keating was sometimes <laughs> criticised, I think, for um, certainly having the vision, but a sense that some people felt a bit left behind, that they yeah. didn't feel as though they were included in in, in that vision. Um, uh, Bob Hawke had a great gift, I think, of yeah. communication. I'm, I'm an equivocal um, in my attitudes to Bob Hawke as a politician for a whole range of reasons, but certainly um, no one could, I think, criticise uh, his capacity to, to kind of make people feel as though they were part of a larger whole. And in fact, on the issue of social cohesion, he deserves great admiration, I think, for yeah. some of the things he did in the 1980s when there were often quite, um, you know, heated debates around issues, and particularly, I think, around Asian immigration. Um, he intervened at critical times in 1984 and then again in 1988, um, in many ways to, to reduce the heat, to, to assert the importance of a basically inclusive social order. Invariably, because he was a schemer as well as a dreamer, he had political advantage in mind. They always do. That's yeah. what a democratic politician does. But he, he was also I think he did that well. He yeah. was also seen as a man of the people, wasn't he? That effectively, his, his the language he used was the language that that the vast majority of the population could understand and relate to, and wasn't over intellectualizing. Where I think possibly Peter. Um, Paul Keating possibly falls into that sort of category of the intellectual. Um, But are there other 
recurring themes that you see within Australia's political evolution, There's particularly anything that you think um, does say something about our the degree of our trust in institutions? Yeah, um, and see, one, of, one of the things I found in the book, and I, I'm surprising, I've been studying this for decades now, and, and it wasn't really until writing this book that I, I was quite able to get my head around this. I mean, Australia's political system, or systems, if you like, in some ways we've had multiple systems over the millennia that the book um, uh, discusses. Um, but certainly, you know, if we think about the post-British invasion um, systems that we've had, they've generally been designed to serve the interests of a, a, often a, a restricted group. And, and primarily, we'd say, you know, kind of white men, perhaps even white Anglo or Anglo-Celtic men. And yet, what, what I found in the book, and particularly, I think, in the era of self-government that followed the 1850s, is that this was a system that also provided openings for others. They weren't able to participate on equal terms to the dominant group, Mm -hmm. but they were able to find spaces for participation. The question I was always asking in this book is, what did people demand of the political system? How did they go about getting it? And how successful was the political system in responding to their, yeah. you know, needs and demands? Are the qu- essentially the bi- three big questions or maybe one question with three parts <laughs> that I always had in mind. And, and look, I found that right from, you know, the, certainly the 1860s onwards, that marginalised groups, groups that this system wasn't really um, designed to serve, were able to use it. Um, and, and examples of that, I think, of Indigenous people in Victoria, for instance, First Nations people in Victoria in the 1860s and 1870s, um, calling for the grant of land, at, you know, mm-hmm. for Dirk near, near Hillsville, mm-hmm. and then using the political system in order to keep it, you know, in the face of efforts by settlers to take it from them. Um, and they, they managed to do that for a couple of decades. Um, and, and I think that that is kind of um, an illustration of, of, of what I have in mind, the participation of Chinese people in the political system. Again, you know, we, we think of the white Australia policy. We think of a political system in the 19th century, the 1800s, really devised to marginalise and exclude Asian people. And yet, the Chinese people, mainly Chinese men who found themselves in Australia from the gold rushes onwards, were able to find those little spaces, those little cracks and openings, if you like, to try and make the political system work for them. They used petitioning. They formed delegations. They occasionally engaged in pamphleteering. They participated in both uh, municipal and parliamentary electoral politics. So um, I'm not suggesting they're able to do so on equal terms, of course, but I think I find this pattern in in the system more generally, that, that it's generally provided those openings for those forms of participation. And uh, it was something that I think I'd underestimated when I I set out on on the Mm. the task of writing the book. Do you think we are moving to a greater understanding of the intercultural nature of, um, of Australian population and how that really does need to play out in our, uh, our democracy, in our politics? Oh, I I think so. Um, 
the 2022 election was interesting uh, in that respect. I mean, clearly there has been a persistent underrepresentation of many ethnic groups within our political system, and I think particularly at the federal or national level, um, mm-hmm. that the parliament has not been um, really a reflection of the diversity of the country. And you know, the paradox there is that you could argue that in many ways Australia has been quite successful, I think, in its multicultural policy and in essentially um, marking out a kind of middle ground that um, conservative populism hasn't really been able to successfully challenge in Australia. So if we look at, you know, the era in which we've lived over the last decade, the era of Trump, the era of of Boris Mm -hmm. Johnson in the United Kingdom, of, you know, conservative and often racist populisms in a number of countries around the world, it seems to me that, that... in Australia, broadly speaking, the middle ground, um, that, the, the, if you like, a, a basic support for a multiculturalism, a basic recognition of the value of immigration, uh, socially, culturally, economically, has largely held up. And it's worth thinking about, you know, what other countries, you know, developed countries do we find around the world of which we could say the same thing. And I follow here um, the late Stuart McIntyre in identifying two, and I think they're probably New Zealand and Canada mm-hmm. are two others that are where I think that middle ground has largely held. And, and it's interesting to speculate about how and why. I mean, all three of those countries, you know, we could see as kind of settler colonial nations mm-hmm. um, that, that often had a very strong sense of the importance of racial purity and of whiteness once upon a time. But, you know, from, I suppose, about the 1960s onwards, adopted different ways of thinking about their um, their composition and, and their society and social relations generally. Um, multiculturalism, you know, is, is usually attributed to Canada, isn't it, in yeah. its origins and, and applied elsewhere. New Zealand, of course, has had a policy of biculturalism mm-hmm. um, over a long, a long period. And so, it seems to me that there are three interesting cases that we probably should do a lot more comparison um, <laughs> actually between them because, you know, whilst one doesn't want to be too celebratory, I think it is notable that, you know, when those, I think often, you know, very aggressive forms of populism were gathering momentum, uh, you know, I suppose you could say from about the middle of the last decade, um, they had some impact in Australia without question. Um, but not as much impact as many people feared they would. And um, I think that is a mark of the kind of politics, perhaps it goes back to the point I was making early, earlier about those openings that our politics has often left for dissenting voices. Yeah. The, the, um, many people would, would refer to our mandatory voting system as one of the things that sort of underpins some of that democratic resilience. I'm wondering what advice you would give to countries that are just embarking on democracy. What uh, you, would, is mandatory voting one of those things that you think we should encourage in other countries? We can, but we probably won't have much success <laughs> because I think it's so rooted in Australian political culture and experience. Um, uh, I mean, it was only adopted federally in 1924 and uh, in the various states around that time or or, or soon afterwards. Um, But, you know, as I think Judith Brett has has shown in a a book on this topic, it's very rooted in a, a very... 
um, what she calls a utilitarian attitude to our politics. That is this notion of the greatest good for the greatest number. Um, the fact that we don't worry terribly much in Australia over abstract rights. We tend to see rights as essentially being constructed through the law and through the process of actually practising politics. So, mm-hmm. you know, we do have obviously a rights discourse in Australia, um, but it's certainly weaker than in the United States yeah. where, you know, you have a Bill of Rights where the, the whole issue of abstract rights is, is is you know, much more prominent within the political culture. Something like compulsory voting would be unthinkable in the United States. And I think that, or virtually unthinkable, and I think that speaks to a very different kind of political culture. So we can certainly advocate it. Um, it clearly has all sorts of benefits, in, again, in terms of perhaps preserving that middle ground I was talking about earlier. Um, but at the same time, I think it's very rooted in our own particular historical experience and we perhaps need to, to recognise that it mightn't be exportable in in the, in the way that uh, perhaps uh, some other aspects of, of our culture might be. Yeah, that's that's very true. It is interesting that we've got so many people who have come to live in Australia and make Australia their home, but they come from very different political systems. And so whether or not they feel that that compulsory voting is um, something that they think is more a burden than a right is sort of interesting to look at its history. And and, um, and as you say, this has only been the case since 1924. So w- how do you think we should communicate the value of that compulsory voting component and the, um, and the I guess, evolution of our politics to, to people who are newly arrived into Australia? Well, it's a, it's a really good question, Anthony, because I think that the... the um the way in which we conduct elections in Australia, and compulsory voting is only really a part of a much broader um, situation, really. I mean, mm-hmm. we've had highly bureaucratic forms of election uh, for a very, very long time in Australia, going right back to the 1850s. I remember doing some work many years ago on New England, the area of, of northern um, New South Wales, northwestern mm-hmm. New South Wales, and looking at some early elections there. And I was astonished at a description of a polling booth that had two Qs, A to K, I think, and L to Z. Uh, and I, I just thought, what an extraordinary thing. I mean, this is a time when elections could still be turbulent, even in Australia. There could be violence on election day. Um, you know, we, violence still occurred in Britain uh, on, on election day. And yet that bureaucratic impulse, that impulse towards establishing order was there, you know, from the 1850s and 1860s. Um, and, and I think that um, we, we um, need to make more of it. That said, I think we do make much more of it than we used to. I think it's become much more integral to the ways in which we differentiate ourselves from other countries, and notably now, of course, the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the United States did not have an orderly transfer of power. They often boast <laughs> about their capacity to do that, of course, but it didn't happen in 2020, 2021. Whereas um, the, the transfer of power in Australia, with one exception, I think, and that would be November, December, 19. 75 has generally been of an orderly and even in 74 in, in 1975 was mainly non-violence mm-hmm. i mean there was some low level <laughs> violence but 
generally not a high level of violence, certainly nothing like what we saw in the United States recently. And I, I think that that has become much more central to how we think about ourselves and our place in the world and, and how we explain to the world that we're not the United States or we're not the mm-hmm. 51st state, you know, that old <laughs> phrase that people used to yes. use for, for <laughs> Australia or we're not Austerica, um, mm-hmm. we're, we're something different. And, and we point to other things as well. We point to our gun laws. Um, we point to uh, health care provision in Australia, a whole range of things that, that uh, differentiate ourselves from the United States. But I think um, free and fair elections and our capacity to run them in, a, I think, a very orderly way, the whole democracy sausage image, of course, mm-hmm. you know, that rather cutesy image, perhaps too cutesy, that, that um, uh, you know, has come to attach to election day is a part of that scenario, I think. It is interesting to think about the different generations in society as well, not just the the new arrivals, but young people tend to be um, slightly more disconnected from uh, a national view of being Australian and tend to see themselves far more as global citizens, but also um, the, the sense of... Um, their ability to achieve their aspirations tends to be declining somewhat. Do you think there is a need then to continue to build that uh, awareness of how um, where Australia has got to and the real positives that exist in our politics to be able to actually have a voice and to make change? Yeah, and I think it's a paradox, isn't it, that that concept of the fair go has been, you could almost call it a national slogan, really. I mean, it's it's the one that sort of sits there virtually all the time um, mm-hmm. as a way of framing uh, a political discourse, policy discussion. Um, what is a fair go? And, you know, that's a powerful um, sort of impulse, I think, in Australian policy and political history. And yet, we, we are, I think, as a society, very tolerant of significant and sometimes growing levels of inequality. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, the, the inequalities between uh, Indigenous and settler Australians, the alarming uh, incarceration rates among Indigenous Australians speak to a fundamental inequality. I, I believe, uh, is it about 32% mm-hmm. of, of those currently incarcerated are Indigenous? Um, the generational issue that you raise, I think, is a powerful one. So many areas of our policy uh, around taxation, around how housing, for instance, around income and wages, um, really um, institutionalise significant inequalities between the generations, make it difficult for younger people to to break into the housing market, that that sort of great Australian dream of home ownership that uh, has been there for so long. Um, So we, we, you know, we have a a kind of a language, if you like, of the fair go. And I think it, it, it undoubtedly shapes, it has an impact on the way in which we do policy and do politics in Australia. And yet we've often, I think, been very tolerant of quite um, significant degrees of actual inequality. Um, It's almost that distinction, I think, between a kind of um, social egalitarianism, which I think is quite deeply ingrained, um, at the same time as you know, economic inequality being something we're prepared to to tolerate. I mean, we mm. see it also, I think, in the very different educational opportunities, you know, across the public and private systems of schools. Um, so that, that's one of the great paradoxes, I think, yeah. of our politics in, in Australia. And it's one that I think anyone concerned with social cohesion, um, you know, needs, needs to grapple with. It obviously does have ethnic 
dimensions, but as you say, it's also about the differences between young and old, and and those old fashioned, those old language, uh, you know, old concepts that we perhaps um, don't hear enough about. Um, simply class inequality, which remains, you know, very much a part of Australian life. Has has fairness been a, a narrative throughout our politics? Yes, I, th- I think it's um, it, it has been uh, a narrative throughout politics. The idea, I mean, the term fair go isn't the one that's always used, but the, the idea that uh, Australia was kind of the land of uh, the second chance, I think, has been very mm-hmm. powerful. I think that's embedded probably in convict origins. Um, it um, was applied very unequally, of course, between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people and has been, continues to be, but Certainly, if we're thinking of the sort of European or British uh, settlement or invasion of Australia and the kinds of culture that was established here from the 1780s onwards, it was often about this idea that Australia was a, a, a place where um, you, you could ultimately have a second chance. That 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 there was a chance for for fairness. And and you know, one, when one thinks of the the uh, you know the policies around uh, things like land selection. You know the mm-hmm. the the, uh, the movement for land reform in the 1860s, 70s, and 80s. It was very much about giving opportunities to those who'd been locked out of of control of the land by earlier waves of pastoralists running their sheep across it. And we, you know, come through right through to things like the living wage concept, which really took off in Australia from the 1890s and was instituted in the Harvester Judgment of 1907 um, by. Uh, Henry Bourne Higgins, the, the, the president of the uh, arbitration court of the day, and that concept that um, it shouldn't be the market that drove um, uh, wages, uh, that, uh, you know, wage setting needed to take account of the needs of the worker and the needs mm-hmm. of the worker's family. And so I think that concept of fairness has, has certainly, um, you know, underpinned a lot of these kinds of policy interventions. And we can no doubt trace it through to, you know, more recent innovations such as the National Disability Insurance Scheme, which I think is also underpinned by some of these kinds of ideas. I think what you're highlighting is how incredibly valuable it is to have a book like yours that stretches across time. It is incredibly easy, I think, to just focus in on the now and completely forget the history that's got us here. And I think, as you point out, many of us don't even think about the politics that existed within First Nations peoples that really is is so important to the foundation of the book that you've written here and in really highlighting that there there are different forms of governance that have been playing out in different ways. But over that time, the media has also changed. Do you have a view as to um, whether or not you think the media is responding to the community or the community is responding to the media in, in our views about politics? Yes, I think media concentration in Australia is one of the frailties of its democracy and it undoubtedly affects issues around diversity and, and cohesion. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, if, if our media is is dominated by narrow interests, if our, you know, if our journalists perhaps aren't coming from, you know, yeah. it's not just our parliaments <laughs> that need to reflect our cultural diversity, it's also our, our media and our journalists that need to. So, you know, where that doesn't occur, I think you, you are... Um, you know, likely to have certain voices excluded or or marginalised. Um, media has always been integral to politics in Australia, and when I say that, I mean really. Uh, uh, you, you could argue going right back into to. Uh, 
pre-contact Indigenous society if you want a very broad understanding of what media involves, but certainly if we're thinking about the, the period since 1788, the, 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 um, the forms of media, whether we're talking newspapers, uh, whether we're talking, which you know, we've had in Australia since, what, 1803, mm-hmm. um, television, radio, uh, the social media, um, they don't simply reflect our politics. They're not simply the means by which politics are undertaken. They're integral to the political system. Um, newspaper editors and proprietors have often played a direct role in... in Basically, the formation of governments. And Son, yeah. David Syme in Melbourne, you know, the, the legendary uh, editor of the Melbourne Age newspaper, you know, was a deeply influential figure. One thinks of Keith Murdoch in the 1930s playing a major role in the elevation of Joseph Lyons as Prime yeah. Minister and the Lyons government, which, which uh, was in power right through the 30s in Australia. And um, we, we also have accounts from historians such as Sally Young of the ways in which um, particularly newspaper ownership was leveraged um, in order to control other parts of the media. So, um, you know, newspaper owners often grabbed a large share of ownership of radio and particularly of television um, mm-hmm. when that came along. And, of course, um, those big media companies still remain really major players in social media as well. So, um, you know, th- this is um, a, a part of the, the paradox I was talking about earlier, really, yeah. of... of you know, our, our belief again in, in, you know, kind of the dispersal of power and wealth. And yet we've been very tolerant, I think, of high levels of media concentration by a limited number of families in many instances <laughs> who've been able to exercise power for many, many decades. I mean, one exception to that was the Herald and Weekly Times, which wasn't a family-based uh, dynasty, but of course, eventually that company went to, to, to yeah. Rupert Murdoch. <laughs> so, um, you know, the, the role of, of particular powerful families has been very important in that world as well. Yeah, I, and but now we have social media, which tends to be bringing all sorts of different narratives from overseas into Australia as well and causes buffeting, if you like, to people's views about the world that aren't necessarily completely relevant to, to the way politics is playing out, um, it is going to be interesting to see whether or not that does influence our politics into the future. Do you have a view about, um, I guess, the speed at which changes may occur in our politics into the future? Yeah, there's a really a sense of acceleration and, and perhaps social media is the part of that, this this notion of the, the kind of 24-hour news cycle, which is obviously very different to the days of print newspapers. And I mean, a, a question you asked earlier, Anthony, which I didn't probably answer um, very fully, was around the identities of younger people, um, which, as you say, are often perhaps more cosmopolitan or global rather than the national. And obviously social media is very much a part of that story, isn't it? Mm-hmm. You know, when I think of my own, you know, seven year old daughter who you know um, a, a lot of her world revolves around um, screen time and 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 uh, um, TikTok and 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 content that that you know is fundamentally um, well we call it global but it's often anglosphere and, and very often American of course yes. um, and so another way in which American cultural influence remains very uh, important in terms of the impacts on our politics well you know the 2022 election was su- such a an, an interesting occasion wasn't it for um, what it revealed I guess Absolutely. about um, the uh, declining capacity, I suppose, of the traditional political parties to corral votes. Um, the the 
primary vote for the lower house, the House of Representatives, yeah. where governments are formed, sort of divided three ways. And I suppose that's a part of a larger story that obviously Scanlon's been very interested in over the years. And that's, as you mentioned earlier, political trust. And one of the, mm -hmm. I suppose, manifestations of that decline in political trust that we've seen with obviously some exceptions. I mean, there were oh. um, interesting survey results during COVID, weren't there, which showed <laughs> increases in, in trust. But leaving that aside, you know, there obviously has been a, a broad decline and, and one of its manifestations is, I suppose, a, a declining trust or, or faith in the ability of political parties to, to affect um, progressive change or to do the kinds of things that they, uh, you know, were, were once... Uh, set to do, you know, so um, uh, that's been interesting. Um, the, the independent phenomenon, um, the obviously the, the rise of the Greens, which um, is very closely connected, I think, to younger people's politics. I think mm -hmm. the Greens, I mean, they, they have supporters across different age groups, but um, I think for many younger voters have been um, a very important aspect of political identity. I mean, voting is, um, to, to a large extent, expressive. You know, it's not just about policy preference. We, who we vote for is an expression of how we see ourselves and who we are. And I think for many young people, voting for the Greens has been a part of that. Um, the community independents, I think, have also tapped into some of those sensibilities mm -hmm. around, around key constituencies. Uh, women voters, for instance, who've often seen themselves poorly reflected in the major political parties. Um, so these shifts are important. We don't really know at this stage, um, you know, whether 2022, you know, kind of um, is a blueprint for what, you know, the future is going to look like or whether it was more an immediate response to a particular disillusionment with the Morrison government and with his leadership. We, we have to wait for that, I think. But, um, you know, certainly the decline in political trust as measured by the surveys has been striking over the last, yeah. you know, 15 or 20 years, yeah. Frank, can I just ask you one question which does relate to the point that you made about COVID because we we noticed that trust in government just shot up during COVID and yeah. it was because of this sense of the government actually does care about us and it is um, underpinning our own uh, economic benefit and in actual fact it's going across all of society to make sure that we're all safe and secure. Now all of those things have gone and we've seen that trust in government drop, not as far back as it was pre, uh, pre the pandemic, but it has dropped considerably. Do you think that that, um, that reaction, that sense of, well, the government can do it if it's actually needed, uh, will have an effect on people's views about what's possible in the future that don't tell us you can't do it because we've just seen you do it? Yeah, I think that's we, we we've seen that in some of the political discourse around uh, job seeker, haven't we? Around mm -hmm. the unemployment benef benefit. If the Morrison government could basically double it during COVID and drag thousands of people out of poverty, yeah. um, uh, why can't it be done more generally? And and I think that's been a source of of welcome from mm -hmm. my point of view anyway, welcome <laughs> pressure on the present government. They probably don't welcome it, but um, <laughs> it's been a, a source of pressure because you know, Labor obviously identifies itself as for social justice. And, um, you know, uh, that's one area where Australia is well behind many other developed countries in, mm -hmm. in um, you know, the support that it provides to unemployed people. I mean, the other area where I think there is a, a bit of a, shall I call it a revolution, certainly a transformation occurring at the moment is really a growing scepticism 
about the kind of contracting out of government services. Yeah. Um, and, and I think COVID exposed some of the, the major problems around that, particularly in aged care was obviously the, the, the area where it, it looked um, particularly bad. But, you know, even um, in, in relation to temporary measures like hotel quarantine, that idea that, that you know, government kind of contract things out to private industry and all will be well and they'll do it better <laughs> than government. I think there's a real, um, a growing scepticism about that, um, which, you know, I think will affect um, attitudes and hopefully policy in areas like childcare, aged care, uh, employment services, um, a whole range of mm-hmm. areas where, you know, that, that process of contracting out has been underway certainly since the 1980s and really took off in the 1990s yeah this has been a fabulous conversation frank and i have just have one last question which is through the process of writing this book was there anything that you didn't know that you saw that just made you laugh out loud (laughs) um I did laugh out loud from time to time. I mean, one thing I've I've quoted in the book is on the fall of the Bruce Page government in 1929. You might think that's a bit arcane, (laughs) and it is, I suppose. Um, It's usually attributed to the position it took over industrial relations. Uh, You know, it it tried to dismantle the old arbitration system uh, Mm. and uh, is usually seen as having been punished for that by being brought down on the floor of the House and then kicked out at the next election. Uh, What I found is that uh, there was another issue at play and that was the hostility of the cinema industry to to a new tax that the government was introducing (laughs) at the time. And I found this extraordinary account of a lobbyist in Canberra. It was the very early days of Canberra as the Capital, basically getting politicians drunk and uh, uh, essentially carrying them in and out of the house at various times so they could vote, uh, you know, it, it, basically to assist the cinema industry. So it gave me another perspective on why that government had fallen and I could see that it wasn't entirely about industrial relations, that there were other things, other at, things play. at play. I, I just, at, at one point in the book I described, you know, Canberra in that period for the politicians you know, exclusively male politicians at that stage as being a bit like a camp, you know, a, a, a sort of a boys camp. And yeah. uh, that, that that particular letter for me really uh, brought that idea home. So I did laugh out loud at that. Oh, that's that's just wonderful. And I've got yeah. to say, there's just a, a wealth of stories in there to read. And I would encourage anybody to read Dreamers and Schemers. It is a, an extraordinary publication and certainly a, an important education for all everybody that's living in Australia. So, um, Frank, thank you so much for spending this time with us. It's been an absolute pleasure. And uh, and I, I thank you enormously for adding to our Voices of Australia conversation. Well, thank you so much. It's been a, a privilege to talk with you. Thanks. Thanks, Banfair. Cheers. Thanks, Frank. Our second guest is Dai Trang Lee, MP a changemaker, independent federal member for Fowler and a champion for diversity and inclusion. With an extensive local government background, including a stint as the deputy mayor of Fairfield City, Lee's advocacy is rooted in fostering inclusivity and representation. She's a staunch advocate for diverse political engagement, leveraging her unique experiences to champion the voices of her constituents. A former award-winning journalist and the founder of Dawn, a boutique agency advocating for cultural diversity and leadership, Dai has been an unwavering, dedicated person to creating a truly inclusive society. Welcome to our podcast, Dai. 
Thank you. Such a, a warm uh, introduction there. A very <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it probably doesn't necessarily do you justice, but it's delightful to have you here. So thank you so very much. Um, if you don't mind, uh, and it would be great to just talk about your transition from Vietnam to Australia and that very difficult four-year journey that you undertook. How have those the challenges that you confronted there influenced your decision to enter the world of politics? Um, I don't know. Obviously, your audience, if they're familiar with the journey of a refugee, uh, and I, I, you know, the Vietnamese refugee exodus is probably one of the um, earliest uh, exodus of, of refugees from war-torn countries, conflict zones. Um, obviously, uh, you know, when you have to flee um, your country, and I was a young girl when that happened, mm-hmm. Uh, you weren't actually aware of what was going on. Uh, I was seven years seven years old, um, and because of our uh, relationship or the Vietnamese relationship, South Vietnamese relationship with the Americans and my family, um, part of my family were with working with the Americans. That meant for us that was a, a threat uh, in terms of our. Um, us being associated with the U- United States of America. So my mother fled and my father, I think, stayed behind and, and then subsequently was uh, disappeared during the war. But my mum, she um, took us girls and, and escaped. And so that was a very challenging, you know, when you just don't know what was going to happen to you. I did not sort of know what was going on, but mum took that risk and, uh, and then ended up, we ended up in a got to the Philippines uh, with thousands of other Vietnamese refugees and then stayed there. And then my mother took on a second journey um, three years later. So in in my life, um, in my young life, in the first 10 years of my life, I've had two boat journeys, two refugee camps experiences, um, which meant that we did not have a proper education. Uh, we were, you know, surrounded constantly by strangers and people that we don't know. Uh, and all of that really, I think, exposed me to the um, the uncertainties of life uh, and how do you deal with the uncertainties and those changes and how do you adapt quickly. And I think the refugee journey for me enabled me once we settled, when we got, once we got accepted to be resettled in Australia, through being processed by the United uh, Nation, the human, um, you know, UNHCR. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were processed in Hong Kong, where our second stop was. Uh, and we got here. That means the trend that made the transition to Australia was no difference to say leaving Vietnam and being on the boat, um, yeah. and being in camp. So uh, to me, it was another of those situation whereby I had to adapt very quickly and we adapted very quickly. I did not know that we were going to be here and and Australia became our home, our second homeland uh, with what was a temporary temporary settlement until we go back to Vietnam. But obviously that wasn't the case. And uh, looking back, uh, I think that um, we're very grateful that Australia accepted us. Uh, We came under um, then the Liberal government, I think Malcolm Fraser, to open the doors to Vietnamese refugees and, um, yeah, and rebuild our lives. Mm. 
And you, you went to a migrant hostel when you arrived here, didn't you? What, what was that experience like? Because the way you've mentioned some of the things that I think an, there are an awful lot of people who haven't been through the same sort of journey that you have that aren't familiar with just the whole idea of simply meeting strangers all the time, the way you just articulated that is, is something that is really quite foreign. Um, and even though we meet strangers, we don't necessarily think of them in the same way as this is a completely foreign group of people that I have no idea what their intention is. I've got no idea of what their, um, uh, you know, how do I get the, the cues from body language to really understand whether I'm in a trusting relationship or situation or not. So, Absolutely. Um, so how, what was your experience like through that migrant hostel situation? And how does that has that had an effect on your views about thinking about uh, new arrivals into Australia now? Yeah, so I think a lot of uh, arrivals coming, um, of refugees arriving arriving in Australia in the last decade, for instance, say from Syria, mm-hmm. a lot of them uh, were are reunited with their families. So they come here and they are um, living with their families, even though, especially here in the seat of Fowler, we, have, we had 10 thousand out of the 12,000 refugees who were resettled in Australia from the Syrian yes. Syrian conflict. So they um, were connected with their families uh, mm-hmm. and they live in, you know, three-bedroom households. So it is overcrowded and all that. For us, that wasn't the experience. We had no one. We had no relatives here. So when we got here, we were resettled in a migrant hostel in, uh, in Ferramedo. And again, uh, you know, it's a one-bedroom uh, place, a hostel. Uh, it used to be a an army, I think a, a mess uh, with, oh, yes. you know, and, um, that was used for the Australian military or defence. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you, you know, you were surrounded by people, again, you've never met, but there were people uh, who had escaped Romania, uh, I think at, at the time from Hungary. So there were those uh, refugees, um, quite a few Vietnamese refugees, but from different camps. Mm-hmm. Uh, arrived so we you know you got to connect with some of these Vietnamese who spoke the same language as you because none of us could speak English at the time so it was it was comforting to have uh, families who spoke the same language as you even though you don't know them and we connected with these families and even some of those Romanian families even though English wasn't the way that we can communicate with them but it's through uh, you know lining up uh, at the mess to get our food breakfast lunch and dinner that we kind of you know through sign languages we we connected um so I think you just adapted I adapted very quickly the kids I mean my, myself being the eldest my two younger sisters adapted uh we at the time had the St Vincent's lady I think St. Vincent de Paul Ladies Society who came to help a lot of the refugees by bringing us clothes, uh, by taking us, introducing us to the local uh, school. So I went to the mm-hmm. local Catholic primary school uh, and they helped mum find, you know, my mum found a job cleaning houses as a domestic cleaner because she couldn't ex- talk very well. Yeah. Um, and so we, we, you know, for me, in my mind, the first thing that I made, I decided when I got here was I was about 10 was that I said, look, in my head, I said, I have to learn English because otherwise, how else, <laughs> how else am I going to survive this if I don't learn English quickly? And so uh, uh, going to school, I focused very quickly to learn the language. Uh, and that helped, obviously helped my mother as well, because a lot of the kids 
the, she, my mum being a single mum, meant that she relied a lot on us kids to help her navigate. Mm. Absolutely. Um, you, 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 you've clearly built on that in the most astonishing fashion because you, you've been an incredibly successful journalist, um, both in um, written media but also at the ABC. Uh, what, what was it about those experiences or, or your entire life up until the time that you decided to join politics that actually made politics attractive to you? What was it that you were hoping to get from having a political position Believe it or not, I actually never aspired to get into politics. And if you ask any of the um, children of refugees, um, politics isn't something that they aspire to get into because um, it, it was because of politics that we lo- we lost our homeland and, and therefore our parents would really discourage us from doing anything. They would encourage us to become a lawyer, a doctor, a majority of, of children of Vietnamese background and refugee background, they are lawyers or predominantly doctors and accountants. So I actually was lost. So I did not know what to do when I, once I finished year 12. Um, I, you know, spent about a year trying to figure out my life um, and I ended up uh, landing a job as a cadet journalist out here in Liverpool in the city mm-hmm. of Fowler. And I loved that I discovered that that path because suddenly I discovered that I was able to uh, search for stories similar to mine and then were able to share those stories with the wide Australian public because at the time, um, in the 70s when we first arrived, we had just come out of the white Australian policy, which I discovered during mm-hmm. my time as a journalist to discover those era. I did not know what it meant at the time because growing up in, in growing up in Ferry Meadow, I I felt that we were very welcomed by the community. Uh, I hardly experienced any kind of racism. Um, you know, there were kids at school that would call you ching chong or slanty eyes, but I did not make it to mean anything other than those kids were just, you know, didn't like the shape of my eyes or, or whatever, but I did not put it down to being discriminated against, but it's very minimal. And so for me, um, that being able to be a journalist and telling stories was something I thought, oh my God, I can actually be go and tell stories what I've been through mm-hmm. and I've been through. And that means the Australian public here in the Liverpool area, at the time it was not as multicultural as it is today, about our stories and our journeys and yeah. others share the share experiences. So um, so that was I want to do more of is to tell more of those diverse stories in our community. Yeah. How has your relationship with the community evolved over time? And and can you talk perhaps to the uh, the importance of trust in having the type of role that you do at the federal level? Sure. I, I mean, I, obviously, I, I grew up here. Um, of course, I moved out uh, for a short time being, but mm-hmm. my family came from here, from Fowler, which is has becoming has become more one of the most multicultural electorates in the country. I would. Uh, you know, yeah. attest to and, and will claim, and 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 I think the trust came from that people have seen me around um, since I was in my twenties. I've grown old. Some of them, have, you know, I've known them for the last <laughs> 20, 30 years. Um, being a journalist, uh, 
having that cultural background also helped with people from similar background to myself, either either being a refugee or migrant, not not necessarily cultural, but having that 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 experience, live experience, that background enabled those people to 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 trust me in that they trust that I know what I'm talking about and I know I can relate to them and I genuinely genuinely can relate to them and that I'm not just making it up because yeah. I have not been through that path. So I think the trust came from the fact that they know my 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 story and therefore they know that I can relate to their own personal stories, be be they come from uh you know Italian background or uh, um uh, Spanish or now the Middle East, like from Iraq and Syrian and Chaldean, um, those who've got the refugee sort of background know that I know what they've been through, they are going through because I have been through that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So so I'm interested in knowing whether or not um, that that trust that is built in into that relationship, that longevity that you've had in Fowler, does that... Um, play a part in what issues people bring to the fore? I mean, what, what sort of things do uh, people within Fowler talk about? What are the things that they're most concerned about? So absolutely, knowing like that I have had since my elections, it's about a year now, um, I've got people coming in here into the office so they've never you know, approach an MP's office before because they didn't think that that person would understand what they've been through. Um, they use this office a lot. So we have a lot, I think we have a more constituents coming to see me because I can relate to them. Mm-hmm. That's what they tell me, they come to me with issues of, you know, from the smallest things, like a fine, um, they were explained to me, you know, this morning I had uh, an elderly couple of, um, from Assyrians who, who's, who, who arrived here as refugees and got processed, but then their, their, their daughter and son-in-law are still stuck in Iraq, but the daughter has just passed away and they've got three grandchildren there and they want to bring them over. Oh and and I'm saying to them, I said, oh, my God, I, I said, our Australian immigration system will not allow that, mm-hmm. uh, especially if you have two elderly grandparents. And they, they cry and they said, but you know what it's like. You know when you don't have your, your loved ones. I said, I absolutely, you know, yeah. I said, my grandmother's still back in Vietnam. But I said, look, I'll write a representation letter. Not, I said, I can't guarantee that the, the government, this government or any government will <laughs> find, be compassionate about that because obviously these are two elderly um, people and they if they were to sponsor their grandchildren over, they would not be able to care for them. And so I think our immigration system and the way that we let people into the country is done in a way that I understand that we need to to, to be mindful of Australian citizens like me or those who live here and how much of, of the responsibility, um, you know, we, we have to play. Um, but I also understand that the resources that would need to bring those three kids over here and who is going to be paying for that, it will be the taxpayers. So I'm aware of all of that. Um, but, you know, Im- immigration people come here a lot and they they don't treat these people have gone to other MPs' offers and they find that those MPs have not engaged with oh. them. But they come here and they say, because I have been a refugee, mm-hmm. so I know. Right, so they use yeah. you know. And I said yes, I know. So that's that's the difference. Uh, is that they come here because they said that I know what what. Well, what, it, it, it's that acknowledgement, isn't it? That their yeah. their pathway is very particular, and it needs yeah. to be viewed through um, 
understanding eyes. That's right. One of the things that you clearly do, because that's just what you described, is help to bridge the knowledge between individuals and uh, the government and the way government operates. From a, a democratic perspective and thinking about the fact that there is a referendum coming up, do you have... Um, can you sort of explain, I guess, something about what the diversity of views are about what democracy is or looks like and how we need to perhaps help the education process of understanding all of these different dynamics from the very least thing about, you know, what does immigration actually allow or not allow, as well as the, sort of the broader understanding of your rights and responsibilities in the space? Oh, look, you know, I um, I mean, first of all, they don't... They, they can't distinguish between local, state or federal. Mm -hmm. So I have to educate them. So I'm in my office, for instance, and I, I found that there seemed to be no appetite by, by our political system and processes to educate the, yeah. a community like Fowler about the different levels of government. Mm -hmm. um, that's very important. Uh, so people are like, uh, you asked me for people coming here for, to me about car parking fines, um, they come in here to me about housing, they come to me about visa. So they come to me to ask help for a whole range of issues that's related to local, state and federal. Mm -hmm. But when you say to them, oh, that's a federal issue, they've got no understanding, what does that mean? Aren't you just a member of parliament? <laughs> <laughs> so it does, they don't distinguish that. Um, so I'm, uh, my office is trying to, you know, putting together material to explain the different levels of government. That's first of all, in terms of our democratic processes. Uh, second, they think that um, the young people are understanding that, but it's that the older generation are not. But even for the younger people, they, they're thinking, oh, you know, everybody goes to vote every four years. But I said, no, federally, you actually only vote every three years. I said, oh, really? Oh, how come? I said, well, that's just a system. Um, so those simple things, mm -hmm. um, if people don't understand, then other complex things such as immigration, it'll be harder for them to understand and comprehend. So the thing, the most important thing as for me as an elected member is to, while comforting them, try and being as honest as I can with them, and not raise hopes for them that, you know, put in, I write a letter for you and let's see, but actually put in some kind of um, framework for them to think, I will give my, my best shot to write, but I just want you to know that this is not a guarantee that's going to happen because our system will not allow that to happen. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I, a lot of the times actually I say that, um, whether or not that's a harsh thing for me to do, but I just don't want to say to people, well, yeah, I'll write it for you and we'll work and make sure that it happens because that's prolonging a person's hope that they'll yeah. that, that be able to uh, yeah, you know, bring their Transparency is one of those things is particularly important to building trust. So mm. I, I think that's a very wise approach. As as you know, the, the Scallon Foundation Research Institute is all about social cohesion. So I was wondering whether or not you could describe what you think social cohesion means to you or uh, certainly within the context of Fowler um, do you feel that that's a cohesive society what are the things that you think underpin that uh, that social cohesion um, absolutely I'm, I'm, I'm aware of I, I love the Scallon um, you know Institute sort of research and paper around social cohesion um, and I think that we've got for me, Fowler is one of the most cohesive um, electorates in the country because we have over 150 different mm -hmm. 
languages spoken um, and people from those 150 different cultural backgrounds and yet they live side by side uh, both religious wise as well um, as well as cultural as mm-hmm. well um, and I think that the secret to cohesion is the leadership of those communities um, who will not um, use the, 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 the differences to uh, pedal some kind of popular um, uh, kind of po- popular topic mm-hmm. and and so, but you 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 ensure that whatever you know um, conversation that you do, you have to take into consideration the diversity of 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 for me for of Fowler. Um, we have Turkish Assyrian living side by side here, mm-hmm. and I don't know if you're aware of the whole tension around genocide and the whole Turkish um, Turkey and. Um, you, you know, people from the Middle East and those yeah. who are Armenian and Assyrian. There's whole this whole cult religious tension there. And sometimes when I go to these community groups, I I, I have to be so mindful of that. And and they are actually also mindful of me, which is I'm very grateful for that. Yeah. That I might be taking one side over another, um, but listening to both sides. Um, you know, we will have also the um, the Vietnamese. You know, I'm trying to really create some sort of reconciliation bridge between the Vietnamese here in Fowler, who are like my family, escape communist Vietnam. Yeah. They do not see Vietnam as a progressive country. They only can remember Vietnam what it was like in '75 uh-huh. when they left. Um, but children, but people like myself and their children have gone back and have seen how Vietnam has transformed itself. So I have to also navigate that in terms of, um, you know, the Vietnamese here and the Vietnamese students coming over who are from the current Vietnamese government. How do you ensure that there is co- cohesiveness and uh, living side by side in, 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 in harmony? So I straddle these <laughs> Uh, issues on a daily basis um and um but you know and this and therefore there are no one protesting no one going out there and um condemning one group over another even though they know they're splitting side by side so so i think for me that it's successful in that they respect the differences and they'll use their 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 significant cultural days to raise issues but then they move on and live like any ordinary Australians yeah, would. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, just t- a couple of more questions, Di, because I know you have to go in time to, as any politician, you've got a thousand meetings in every, any one day. Um, the, the This area of um, leadership that you talked about and leadership across the community, one of these important things that, important roles that you play is helping to, uh, set a vision, if you like, to which those leaders can also play a part in, a, a sense of what you think Fowler should look like, how you think uh, Fowler is going to progress over time and and how do you then engage with those other leaders to bring them along so that you're all building that same sort of sense of um, uh, optimism for the future. Is, is that something that you see playing out within Fowler in, in this particular point in time? Absolutely. Uh, I have been very proactive in, um, for instance, the last 12 months since my election, 
I have really engaged with my community around many issues such as housing, childcare, uh, small business, so that, that they inform me uh, the importance of that. I mean, I had an arts, a creative arts group that come in here. They said, you know, no one, no, no MP has ever reached out to us to have a conversation around what, what are the issues that are impacting us as creatives here in Fowler. Um, the same with the childcare industry. Um, you know, the, the, for the local MP, no one has really got together and say, how can we work together? How can my role as a federal MP um, provide some kind of facilitate and, and, and bring people together to create solutions for our community locally, rather than waiting for the big government to fix the problem because big government or government just will never fix anyone's problem. So I see my, my role as not just as a member of parliament, as somebody who actually can can utilise where I am to bring stakeholders together, community members together, those who are impacted together, say, okay, let's find a solution. Uh, this morning I had a meeting around housing mm-hmm. because you know, while we're waiting for half uh, the, 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 the policy piece to pass in the Senate, um, that means the 30,000 social housing that the government promised is not going to be delivered and it's even even if it gets passed, it's, it's not going to happen in the next 12 to no. 18 months unless you really take action in bringing those who can make it happen, such as local government, state mm-hmm. government, developers and bodies such as NIFIC and all of that to come together and say, what, how viable is it that if we work together, we can at least get one set of housing built yeah. between now in uh, 18 months. Uh, and that's what I, 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 my, I think as a member of parliament, your position or a position as a member of parliament, you can actually facilitate that and make that happen rather than going into and vote and wait for a piece of policy. Because realistically, there yeah. are people in the community that can make it happen. Yes, yeah. It, it's so important that you, that one of the real uh, strengths of being a federal MP is that you can articulate what those issues are and recognise the connectivity. Now, on a totally different, and this is my final question, on a totally different point, um, I know that food is something that's very important to you in understanding how the role that food can play in regard to social cohesion because you've you've done uh, something for us previously in that space. Do you want to just mention something about how how important is food in in the way that you interact with constituents oh look food i think is is so critical in connecting people mm-hmm. and um and i'm so blessed that i am in one of the most diverse um electorates with diverse cuisines ever <laughs> anywhere i don't you won't find it anywhere and and it, it it breaks so many um, it breaks so many barriers in terms of connection. Um, you know, I can sit across and have you know some fatush dish, um, you know, with people from the Middle East, be Iraq, Assyrian, Chaldean. Um, I can eat a fatush salad, which I'm yeah. sure you have too. <laughs> uh, easy to digest. Uh, to you know, to some of the more elaborate meals and a lot of the functions the other meals you kind of talk over the food the same with Vietnamese Cambodian food brings people together yeah it um, certainly does and, and I think that you know we have it here 
um, even a sausage sizzle. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. You can bring people over and they have a, you know, a sausage sizzle uh, to fundraise and all that stuff. So, yeah, it's, I, I can't emphasize the importance of it. And, and in my family, we love food. You know, we cook. Um, you know, we, we've, the last three weeks, we've just been yes. using food as a comfort um, Absolutely. to remind me of my mum. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, no, an incredibly important point to make. And, and thank you. Thank you so much for being so open and sharing uh, not only your journey, but also your thoughts about uh, where the world should go in the future and the importance yeah. of food. And next time I talk to you, we'll, we'll talk about karaoke. So. Oh, yeah, yes, please. <laughs> it's, another, it's another connector. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Dali. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Hi, Matt. It's great to have you here with us again for this little end of podcast chat. No, thank you for having me again. Uh, not at all. It's an absolute pleasure. And and just for those that might not have heard the other ones, you're an early PhD student at Monash University. Yep. But also you're relatively newly arrived into Australia. So yeah. this is one of the, uh, the first introductions to having conversations about our politics. So was there anything that stood out to you in our two conversations with uh, Dai Lee or Frank Bongiorno? For sure. I mean, what I really loved actually was the kind of contrast that we had between the guests today. So Frank gave us such an amazing, like interesting, in-depth background and like framework for how politics works here. And then mm-hmm. Dai gives that really personal kind of driving uh, focus. Absolutely. I think it gives that more of a rounded view uh, of politics. Uh, yeah, a lot of things stood out. And I think, again, only being here for uh, a few months, one of the things that stood out, maybe it's me just being in somewhat optimistic surroundings, but I've heard time and time again about the Australian fair go, you know, about yeah. how everybody should get a chance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, coming from a diverse background myself, well, relatively diverse background yeah. myself, uh, it's a really refreshing thing to hear. Uh, and I think even if Australian politics doesn't always live up to that ideal, that standard, the fact that it is one of the driving forces between political and social life is, I think it's a really great thing. Yeah, I, I think it is interesting that, that when you have a, a constituency from a federal level of 25 million people, every single one has a different view about exactly what fairness means to them. Uh, but it is interesting to see some of this ebb and flow over time that Frank talked about, where you can actually see that narrative mm. playing out, regardless of what the different ideologies are that might be in government at any one time. Yeah, I think he did make a really important point as well, that uh, the system was set up for a specific purpose and a specific group of people. But even within that, there is still room for other voices to be heard. And mm-hmm. I think um, particularly the interview with Dai showed that that system is still in the process of opening up and there is there is space for it to be opened up. It's not yeah. kind of locked in for just this small group of people. There is space for others to come in and widen that scope, which uh, I think is a great thing. Absolutely. It is also, you know, we have a representative democracy and it is really important that we have representatives that are of community mm. that actually can relate to the different aspects that different parts of the community actually bring mm. and and can then convey that into the decisions that are being made at a, at a federal level. Yeah, I think Di made a, a really great point where um, a lot of the trust that she 
gets is from that lived experience that mm-hmm. she has, and people can see that lived experience. Uh, certainly in other countries, no, I haven't been to Australia long <laughs> enough to really determine, but in other countries there's this feeling kind of disconnect from your politicians because they are in a different plane, they have different background to you, they usually come from kind of elite backgrounds. Uh, seeing Dai being who she is, the experiences that she's talked about and she's mm-hmm. gone through and being able to relate to the people that she serves, I think that's one of the most important things you can have in a politician. It is, isn't it? And I do think that this... The, the great thing about this podcast has been that we've covered a whole variety of different topics and bringing different voices to how we might interpret those things. Politics is one of those really big subjects. So hopefully the two different, very complementary uh, speakers will help to emphasise both that localness that's so important in a representative democracy, but also um, a sense of time that, mm. that um, democracies and, and countries have very long time spans around which all of these things play out. So it's um, it's been a fascinating set of conversations, but I'm really interested in getting some feedback from the people that listen to this podcast uh, um, about what they take away from it too. Me too. I think they'll be as impressed as I was with both of them because <laughs> I mean, they're such eloquent speakers as well. So both of them can really down-to-earth and approachable speakers that can mm-hmm. really help you engage with the, the subject matter. So I think great guests today. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, Matt. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the Voices of Australia podcast, brought to you by the Scanlon Foundation Research Institute. This podcast is produced by me, Faisal Farah, and with audio, visual, recording and editing by John Bigelow from Interactive Media Solutions. Research for each episode is provided by Agalos Makdijorjos and Matthew Skidmore. Original music is by Steve Klapsinos. Learn more about the Scanlon Foundation Research Institute and all its works by visiting the website www.scanlaninstitute.org.au.